Hi, everyone, and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. And this is Dan. And we're here tonight for a September episode. Now, a lot of our picks tend to be seasonal. This is one that's kind of been percolating for a little while. But when I first thought of it, it wasn't particularly seasonal in theme. And it just so happened that it lined up to be calendar appropriate. Because what did we watch this week, Dan? We watched a movie called... Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings from 2002, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It comes to us straight from the boom time of big fantasy blockbusters. It pretty clearly traffics in the same fare and wants to be considered in the same stratosphere as Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. I mean, the title is basically knockoffs of each of them. Max Magician is the name that you would come up with if you gave yourself a creative exercise to come up with a Harry Potter knockoff in 10 seconds or less and not allow yourself to think about it any further beyond those 10 seconds. Yeah, it's like a filler title. Like, think of a better name eventually, and they never did. But the reason that it's thematically appropriate and uh, chronologically appropriate is that this is a local film. Maybe our very first, because it was filmed largely at the Maryland Renaissance Fair. And what wasn't filmed at the Renaissance Fair was filmed in a cave in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Oh, cool. So this is very homegrown, and in a lot of ways it looks and feels it. Definitely. Um, the There's also a couple of scenes shot at a suburban house, I think... At least there is an exterior shot of a suburban house, and it, the interior does indeed feel like a suburban house. Do you know where that was shot? I didn't look that up. So apparently on the DVD release of this film, there is like a commentary track and a making of featurette, and I very much want to see those. Uh, maybe we'll track down a physical copy of this movie and give you an update at some point. Yeah, I almost want to do a part two after we get to watch that. Because surely no film we've watched has more deserved a part two than this one. <laughs> yes. Uh, in discussion for this week, Dan messaged me saying, some of the movies you recommend, I watch once and can comment on. Some need a second watch. This is one of them. <laughs> it was something along those lines. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Sometimes, yeah, I, the thoughts came spilling out as I was watching and I was like, I need... I didn't capture them all the first time through. There needs to be a second pass. So, yeah. Yeah, so I wanted to give a little context for this pick. Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say not many of you may have heard of it. For whatever reason, I got this in like an Amazon recommended ad on Facebook. It just said, you can find Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings 2002 on Amazon. And... I thought, what the heck is this? But I, I guess they have their finger on my pulse because I needed to see this film. <laughs> you clicked it. That's right. In some sense, I could tell what it was from the thumbnail. 
Like, I, I don't think they really hide the quality of the film in their poster. I think it comes across. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's take Harry Potter and the Fellowship of the Ring, put them in the blender, extract all of the money and budget from that. And that's a starting point for this. Sort of. There's a specific look of zero-budget local film posters, and it's captured here. <laughs> it's like, take the least flattering picture of each actor and just, like, collage them together so they're not lit the same. And, it, like, the contrast is weird, and you're getting there. Yeah. You know, throw a couple different fonts on there. <laughs> the ones that you can get on those online free font packs. Not to hate on those free fonts at all. I've gotten no. a lot of mileage out of free fonts. Me too, for sure. Which uh, is is a point that we're going to return to. Cause, because one thing I think we need to keep in mind as we take a look at this film is, like, what is it possible to accomplish with no budget? And what isn't possible to accomplish with no budget? Because I, I do want to commend this movie in some ways just for existing. Being a film that's feature length in the fantasy genre made right here in town, basically. Right. Uh, and, and so I am kind of weighing in my head how much of a handicap to give it with those things in mind. And these are talking points we're definitely going to return to before we throw a number value on this thing. Yeah. And on a similar note, I'm going to be doing at least a little bit of Duncan on this movie as we progress here. Some of my thoughts are not so flattering about the film. That's, that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, one thing that I just want to say this now that struck me as I was watching, there's a lot of things that don't look Hollywood-esque that look, as you said, you might not have used this word, but homespun, made locally and amateurishly is that the people actually look like real people and it made it very easy for me to imagine these people who like, I like fantasy and I like making movies and my dad's friend is financing a film and I get to appear in it and I'm happy about that. Or like people who are just, hey, oh, I'm going to do makeup. I'm going to give you some face paint because you're the warrior princess. And that carries in the amateurish production in a way that, might be charming, like not in the way that I typically view films. Like maybe if I actually knew them, that would be more charming, but it at least made me appreciate that these were real people making a thing. And I'm appreciative that someone went out there and made it, you know, like you said, it's in some ways it's a miracle that this thing exists. And so I am definitely going to have a fully fledged good things and not so good things section this episode following our recap, because there's a lot going on in my head trying to evaluate this movie. Sure. Uh, but also know going in, something I've thought about is that we need our own Robert. <laughs> we need a Robert that is fully ours, that doesn't exist in some other podcast feed we need to turn our listeners to. Uh, we need at some point to delve deep enough that we find a one rated film one out of eight on our scale and so know that at least for me that search is ongoing and and we'll see if we hit it tonight <laughs> um in college 
in college, I was known for running an event called Brian Terrell Movie Night, which is when I would bring weird movies to a group of people and have them watch them. So far, the only one that was featured in one of those events that we've talked about here on the podcast was 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. But this is the first one I've found in the course of doing the podcast that I know would be a Brian Terrell movie night pick. Like, this is the first time I've felt in that same vein. I'm feeling that same energy today. Right. And it, it feels good. I feel reinvigorated. Yeah, no, it's it's good to re-encounter bad cinema. But before we delve into the darkness here, what is your experience with the Maryland Renaissance Fair, Dan? I've never been. My brother-in-law has been many times. Many of my friends have been many times. My wife has been a handful of times. Which is, I think is kind of funny because this is the type of thing that I would generally think would be more my scene than hers. But I've never been. And it's something I'd like to do sometime. Okay. So... My experience is that I went once in 2004, so not too long after they were there making this movie. It was my freshman year of high school, and I went with a couple friends, and I loved it. I thought it was great. When I first walked in the door, one of the first people that I saw was cosplaying as the Black Fox, kind of the Robin Hood stand-in in the 1955 film The Court Jester, which is a favorite of mine. A pretty deep cut as far as cosplay goes. And I just thought, man, I gotta come back here again. Yeah. Uh, I didn't stay as long that time as I wanted to because the guy who had the car wanted to head out. But, you know, it's it's always been on my mind, kind of in the back, just thinking, oh, I could do that this year. And generally it runs September and October. That's why it's timely, it turns out. But, I don't know, I've always got stuff going on in September and October, and it just kind of slips my mind. I don't really have a group to go with. Like, in 2018, I finally lined up that I was going to go, and the day we had set aside, we were, like, pulling into the parking lot, and they released a message on Twitter or something that said it had rained too much the night before and they weren't going to open up that day. Brutal. That's the worst. So know that this has like been percolating in my head. Maryland Renaissance Fair. And I feel a connection to it, even though I've only been once 17 years ago. I will say, like, nothing gives me more Facebook FOMO than seeing girls post Renaissance Fair pics. <laughs> it's like, I want to go to there. Yeah. These are your people. We should uh, we should go maybe this year, maybe next year. We should figure out how to make it work. Right. So uh, I know I pitched the last goods field trip and we were like just down there in Orlando. But uh, I know you got at least one free weekend coming up. It's something I'm going to toss into the mix. An idea that I'm going to throw out there is maybe we try to line this up. If not immediately, then at some point before the end of October. Yeah, let's sync up offline and, and figure out how we can make it work. I think that would be a fun goods field trip. Oh, we can do a shot-for-shot shot location tour <laughs> of Max Magician. Or any of our regular listeners local, could we invite them to join us at a goods meetup? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if that is the way you'd like to spend a day, we'd love to have you, guys, <laughs> gals, anybody. 
send us an email, thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. If you're around at all during uh, September and October and want to meet up with us. If you dream something, do it. You dreamed it for a reason. Chris Thrash. Indeed. So a little bit of historical context for this movie. I looked it up. The Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone film came out in November of 2001. Fellowship of the Ring came out in December of 2001. And the second chapter of each of those would come out exactly a year later. So November 2002 for Chamber of Secrets. December 2002 for Two Towers. The Google-listed release date for Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings is October 1st, 2002. So it was right there in the thick of it. Okay, so the creative team saw previous winter, the first each of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, and then within a year had this movie out. That's, that's impressive turnaround in the world of feature-length films. Yes, they got on it right away. They had a fire lit underneath them. (laughs) One last thing I'll say before we try telling this saga is it is a chosen one story. And it called to mind a turn of phrase from a video that I watched by Brad Neely a long time ago on YouTube. It's part of his Baby Cakes series, which follows... uh, man-child character who's in his 30s and in this video he's like got the ear of a starbucks employee and he's just rambling about things as she has to listen before he makes his coffee order but this is the best ever summary of chosen one archetype stories i've ever heard and so i wanted to share it here now baby cake says there's always some poor kid who has a sucky life But then he's visited by someone from a hidden world of awesomeness who explains to the kid that the kid is the chosen kid and everyone is waiting for him to fight and to win and to accept treasure and to accept love and to rule the hidden world of awesomeness like the handsome little asshole that he is. (laughs) Happens all the time, right? That's good. I like that. That's that's a good overview, for sure. Yeah, I think that is a pretty good recap. Like, if we gave you nothing else, that would tell the story of the movie. <laughs> and I think he says, And all of us is just hoping to be one of those forgotten chosen ones. I mean, I still see people our age, our mid-30s, saying, When am I going to get my Hogwarts letter? When's it going to happen? So, there's truth to that. Now here we are. The doors are opening... <laughs> To a new world. This is the plot of Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings. Are you ready, Dan? Let's go for it. So we begin with a cold open, which features a troll assassin called the Red Cap, chasing two vaguely elven-looking dudes through a forest. Did this intro elicit any memories for you, Dan? So I know I've seen openings like this before. I was trying to remember, does Troll 2 open with, like, scampering in the wilderness? This is the Troll 2 opening. (laughs) It's goblins chasing people through, like, waist-level greenage. And just, like, awkward footage of running full force through a mid-level growth of forest. 
I can't remember the specifics of the Troll 2 experience of the opening scene, but I can say here, it basically boils down to seven minutes of panting that we have to listen to as this movie opens. And I was already a little bit over it. Like the film did not put its best foot forward, I would say. Seven minutes might be a slight exaggeration, <laughs> but it does go on for a while. It felt like seven minutes. And it lacks the great opening tune of Troll 2. There's no like 80s guitar here. Right. But this goblin guy with the hood, he kills the two messengers. He like axes them in the back. But not before one of them kind of half-heartedly crawls to a magical door and passes a little scroll through the door. Which, as we're going to find out, this is a passageway, a portal between Earth and... This is called the Bluebell Forest. So, I don't know. Not a especially manly moniker for this realm we're <laughs> going to be talking about. You might as well call it the Forest of Feelings. <laughs> I got a lot of questions about Bluebell Forest. So I take it it's like a alternate dimension fantasy. You got to go through a, a door to get there and a door to get back. But I mean, we can talk more about it as we go through the plot. The mechanics of that are very dubious. Like characters are at least Max is hopping back and forth willy nilly. And I don't know, I, I didn't quite get the spatial relationship between the woods next to Baltimore and Bluebell Forest or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because one of the elven people mentions that they're part of the New World She. And I wondered if that meant New World like North America. I wasn't really sure. <laughs> but now this message from the people has made it to Earth through the door and it gets picked up. Not by Max yet, but by this dude named Mr. Tim, who's just this, like, 50-something dude with a goatee walking around the woods, looking, I guess, for magic scrolls. I got a lot of thoughts on Mr. Tim. First of all, who the F is Mr. Tim? Like, what is his position in society? What, may, let's maybe put a pin in this until we actually see Max interact with him, but I just was trying to understand, is he like a janitor? Is he like a local wise man? Just who is Mr. Tim? Any any insights on this, Brian? No, I, I can't say for sure. We will return to Mr. Tim. Okay. <laughs> because pretty shortly we see our protagonist proper, a kid named Max Magic. I'm sorry, Majek. Max Majek. <laughs> it's, if you're familiar with Bobby's World from back in the day, it's, he was named, um, Bobby generic, but he always said it's generic. <laughs> so this is Majek. And this is a kid who's obsessed with magic. He has a bunch of Houdini posters in his room. And I actually have one of those Houdini posters. <laughs> How did that make you feel? Yeah, the one where it's Houdini with the Sphinx. I, uh, I've got that poster. Nice. It made me feel some type of way. <laughs> I, I did get like a genuine laugh when he's got his magician cape on and he runs and he falls down the stairs <laughs> and his mom says don't wear that to school <laughs> uh, that's pretty good yeah uh and apparently he is a bullied kid but the bullying is so mild 
Like, the first time we see it happen, he's, like, walking across a parking lot, and the two kind of Crab and Goyle characters, like, walk up diagonally into him and, like, <laughs> nudge him with their shoulders and then carry him off the other way. Like, ha we got him good. It's like, is this bullying? I don't know. I feel like maybe society has gotten too sensitive at that point. Yeah, maybe. They're just projecting mean dude vibes, I guess. Is, is That's how they're bullies. I will say that brings me to a thought I had on this movie, which is if you're going to be a cheap knockoff, I'm surprised there wasn't more of a niche that it, it went into. Like, it, it could have been the super anti-bullying version of a fantasy movie or, like, the super Christian version or the super environmental crunchy or the super non-violent one or something like that it didn't really hit any of those things it just kind of cherry-picked a couple of those ideas and i don't know i kept expecting it to have like more of a reason for existence and more of a niche that it, it tried a lane it tried to fill than it than it ever did yeah well i guess we'll get into it as we cover the full plot but it also didn't seem too invested in specifically being a mockbuster of Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. Like, the rings are in the title. You don't see them very much at all, or even really hear about them. Right. And there's not, like, a wizard school. There is a wizard training montage at one point, but as far as, like, direct parallel characters, there aren't too many. That's a good point. I haven't even thought of that, but it's definitely true. He's not even that good of a Harry Potter stand-in. No. <laughs> but Mr. Tim witnesses one of these confrontations, so-called, with the bullies. And he says, oh, Max, you gotta stand up for yourself. You gotta believe in yourself. Immediately pivots to, wanna come get a drink at my place? And I was like, what's going on here? One of the scenes in the parking lot... So... There's various flavors and degrees of bad movie making. And one that this movie gets to just a couple of times is like so weird and bizarre that I just can't even process it. It's like watching a movie made on another planet or something like that. And this scene in the parking lot where like he's showing off tricks to these two girls and these girls... I mean, they must have just been like friends of someone. They clearly had no experience or interest in actual acting. And it was like Tim and Eric level of absurdism, bad acting, pace of the way that people were saying things. It was just like otherworldly, man. I'm glad you brought it up. I don't even really know how to talk about this scene, so I kind of glossed over it. <laughs> I read another review mentioned that are there only like five people who go to this school <laughs> and and the reason that stuck out to me was because i too took this to be a school parking lot but there's no school in sight i think this was all filmed at like a park parking lot that's not really next to anything but it's it's like a parking lot that's got a path next to it that goes into the woods that was the sense that i got interesting i, I guess I thought the mom said that you're going to school. It raises even more continuity questions, which we can get to in a bit. No, I think you're right. That's insightful. That it's like a Kulishov thing. That they say, 
the, they plant the idea in your mind that the next scene is going to be at school. But then when we see them, it's like this nebulous parking lot that doesn't <laughs> really have a clear place in space that it e- exists. And yeah, I mean, these girl actors, he does the trick for them, which involves like a fake egg. And it's supposed to have, like, some kind of candy or something in there. It made no sense. But then when the egg opens up, we don't get a close-up to actually show what's in there. It looks like it's just, (laughs) like, a piece of paper or something. (laughs) Like a crumpled... uh, I couldn't even tell, because their hands are blocking it. And they place just enough import on what was inside the egg (laughs) that then not seeing it is very jarring. I would say the most bizarre part of it is that these girl characters who are not projected to be like strange or weird or dorky in any way are like unironically interested in this self-professed loner doing his magic tricks for them and are like excited about it. I, I just, it was a weird two minutes for the film. But luckily, Mr. Tim is here to (laughs) dispel any awkwardness. (laughs) Yes, he pulls Max aside back to his place, I guess. They obviously have some pre-existing relationship, although we don't know exactly what the nature of that is. And Mr. Tim gives him a book of real magic. (laughs) Not really uh, apropos of anything other than, hey, you want to stand up against bullies? I have just the thing. Sorcery is real. (laughs) If there are any miners listening to this podcast, if an old man with a beard invites you over for a drink and wants to give you a book of real magic, just get out of there as quickly as you can. Just bolt, man. Because that's that's some dangerous news there. To his credit, Max is initially skeptical, but he starts to become a believer when... Pretty much right away, he encounters a talking mouse named Crimble. <laughs> and who is Crimble, Dan? I mean, you nailed it. He's a talking mouse, but he's he's like the comic relief animal sidekick who's always quipping. But it's worse than that. Just take the worst version of what you think that is and add just a nonstop giggle track next to it. And yeah, he's constantly laughing. He's like, hee <laughs> And it's sped up chipmunk voice. Yeah. So I guess the deal is that Max had been feeding this mouse in the woods for a week. But like, that just doesn't make any sense. You don't see mice in the woods. And if you do, you don't see the same mouse every day for a week on end. And so like has this attachment to it. I don't know. It was just bizarre. Although I did think it was cool that given some clear budget constraints, they had a couple of actual live animals in this film. And, like, I don't know, maybe it was just someone's pet mouse, but, like, it gets significant screen time and play in in the movie. That's right. We get a mouse, multiple mice, actually. We get a hawk, a horse, real animals. They're free from Hollywood's strictures and taboos. (laughs) No marching CGI animals here. And Crimble encourages Max to use the powers of the book... This book is like a monster manual for D&D, but like printed and designed very cheaply. 
Yeah, like Adobe InDesign or Microsoft Publisher or something. Yeah, it's like a wannabe Gravity Falls journal. But he casts the first spell from the book and it opens up that door that we saw before that goes to the quote-unquote other kingdom, which I guess is an interchangeable term with the Bluebell Forest. (laughs) Um, But he goes through with Krimble and they're walking along. And lo and behold, they walk up to a castle, which I immediately was like, wait a minute. I think, I think I've seen this castle before. This castle looks familiar. And I didn't quite know yet what I know now, but I was scratching my head. It's also a super weird establishing shot anytime they show this castle. Because this is like the central attraction of the Renaissance Fair. And you can just, like, go up there and walk around on the parapets. And in every shot that they show of it, that's what's happening. There's just, like, people in regular clothes walking <laughs> around, not really looking at anything or doing anything relevant to the plot, up on top of this important establishing shot castle. I think the idea is it's, like, supposed to be a bustling village inside. But I completely agree that, yeah... It was odd. Yeah, it's possible they told them to, like, mill about, but I really got the sense that they're like, oh, we gotta get a wide shot of that castle, but there's people on it. Yeah, whatever. We'll fix it in post. We just need it. (laughs) We need people to know that there's a castle here. And he goes up and knocks on the door or whatever of the castle, and this character called Tom Tit Tot comes out (laughs) and, like, greets him assaults him, I don't know what you want to call this, grabs him by his lapels, gets very close to his face, and starts talking in a super high-pitched voice also, in obnoxious rhyme. Honestly, calling it rhyme is generous, because he frequently betrays the rules of, like, meter. (laughs) And there's, like, even the first time we meet meet him, there's, like, a gag where he calls him a magician. But... What rhymes with magician? And so he's projected as comic relief, but he's horrible. He He's, if we're going to, you mentioned to me when you pitched this movie that you wanted us to do an annoying characters ranking. This is in the top five for sure. This guy, Tom Tit Tot. Yeah, Tom Tit Tot wins it for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to spoil here. And you're being too generous, imitating his voice. It's like, what rhymes with magician? (laughs) Also, one good point about this film is whoever was doing the makeup was, like, legitimately capable, at least. Agreed. Tom Tittot has, like, this thick layer of prosthetic old person makeup. And he is not the best example of the makeup work in the film, but... He is an example. I completely agree. The very weird thing, though, about the makeup is they picked like four characters to get a full prosthetic and makeup job. And literally everyone else has like face paint. Like, no offense to your show, but like what I would expect on Count Gauntley's horrors from the public domain, like amateur hour. And so it's just very jarring to have like these. I I agree. Like, as far as. The technical aspects of it, easily the highlight of the film. 
to just here's a blue sharpie on your face. This is not the first time that Gauntlet is going to be brought up in discussion tonight. <laughs> just a few talking points before we move on from Tom Tit Tut because I could not get him out of my head once he was there. <laughs> He looks kind of like Billy Crystal as Miracle Max in The Princess Bride. Interesting. Maybe that's the costume they were going for. Uh, And then, like, personality-wise, if you've read Lord of the Rings, what it reminded me of was Tom Bombadil. Okay, I can see that. Like, the annoying, perhaps wise and powerful man. Right, and he's always, like, skipping around and rhyming, and his name is Tom. And it was a wise choice to leave him out of the Peter Jackson movies. Right. One difference is that Tom Tit-Tot is not God, as far as I can tell. And Tom Bombadil is kind of set up that he might be God. So you have not seen Mulholland Drive, correct? That's right. So I'll keep this low spoiler then. There is a hobo character who has some grotesque makeup. Tom Tittot made me think of the grotesque hobo character in Mulholland Drive. That was my point of comparison. And let's just say that <laughs> they are both equally off-putting in different contexts. <laughs> well, now I might have to watch Mulholland Drive. <laughs> oh, you absolutely should. That would be one for us to watch together and discuss afterwards. Nice. Well, Tom Tit-Tut takes Max into the dining hall where he meets the court of Princess Etain. I'm honestly looking forward to the point in the podcast when we can be just casually in other episodes dropping some of the names from this film. Because that's another <laughs> somewhat strong point. We've got like Belphoebe and Hurla, Dagda, Etain. I-, I want these names to become like hardy gins to us. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty good. Part of our goods argot. Right, right. Our, our lingo. That's right. But Princess Attain explains that her kingdom is being threatened because evil Lord Dagda is on the rise with his army of the Unseely. This is one of the moments of several that made me aware that someone on the crew, at least had like a passing interest at least in Celtic mythology. Like it dives a little deeper than the very surface area fantasy that people are aware of. Like beyond just having elves and goblins or whatever, you know, somebody picked up like an Irish or Scottish mythology book and worked in the red cap and the she and what have you. Interesting. They, they, they want to at least give it like an academic veneer. And it's probably not much more than that. I'm not an expert. I felt like somebody was passionate about what they were doing. Okay. I didn't know. I, see, I thought those were just all made up terms. So now I know. No, seely is like holy and unseely is unholy. And it's like the the light and the dark elves. Gotcha. And they worked in like some, I don't know if it's Gaelic, just kind of Scotch-Irish terms. Oh, and another giveaway was all the fake Enya music. <laughs> it's like, they definitely want to, like, evoke Ireland and stuff here. I actually kind of unironically enjoyed the the fake Enya music. Very inspiring. Yeah. Oh, me too. And 
some of the score just feels like somebody listened to Howard Shore and tried to write it from memory and changed three notes. And that was the score for that scene. When we get to the end credits, there's just absolute pages of tracks listed out from stock libraries. Oh, interesting. And I really want to track some of these down and just make a mix CD of <laughs> Max Magician, the music. The Max Magician playlist. Yeah, that's great. One thing I'll just throw in here, and it, it could be an overall positive about the film, um, but we're, we're kind of running around the woods in this alternate world. And then you get inside the castle village, but it's still like lots of green trees, but it's early fall. There's a couple of the leaves are changing color. A couple of leaves have fallen. Um, if you're going to have a cheap movie, filming it out in the woods and cranking up the saturation for your color at least makes it more pleasant than like Robert when we were cramped indoors at a what was like a hotel or some really boring interior set. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I enjoyed being I enjoyed being outdoor in the the pleasing greens, even if they I don't I don't know if they were sophisticated enough in 2002 to do like actual color grading or whether their sensors just like amped up the saturation or they applied some sort of effect in whatever editing software they use. But like the wildlife is very bright and eye catching. That's definitely one big difference from Robert. We are in the outside world. There's also way more people involved. Mm -hmm. Like comparatively, this is a cast of thousands. <laughs> it's not quite to that point, but it's, it's much more than in Robert. But pretty much as soon as these characters sit down to dine in the castle hall, some of Dagda's thugs bust in. They just smash down the door with their LARP hammers. Because <laughs> this movie, despite having fantasy battles, I, I think they must have just been able to use whatever weapons they could bring into the Renaissance Fair. And like they could only bring peace bonded stuff and whatever. Because uh, Dagda's like orc guys all have these big fake looking war hammers yeah like made out of craft foam and a, a stick you got at michael's or something like that right and the good side the like elf bluebell people they all have quarter staffs they've just got sticks <laughs> nobody has a sword nobody has plate armor nobody has bows and arrows it's all just this melee stuff and in Gravity Falls, something we didn't talk about, is there's an episode where Seuss goes LARPing. These dudes carrying the Warhammers look like they're all just part of Seuss's LARP crew. Totally. Just these big, heavyset, scruffy dudes who clearly probably would have been there anyway. And it was just convenient that somebody happened to be making a movie. Right. My uh, notes include the sentence, why is everybody LARPing? So I'm with you on that. I have a couple thoughts on, on the feast. Do we want to talk about the feast here for a minute? Sure, let's talk about the feast. So one is just out of the blue for like maybe a total of six seconds. There is this one dude who is like a alien from the Star Wars cantina looking reptilian guy in this crazy makeup and he serves absolutely no purpose to the plot. He does not fit in at all. And I enjoyed all six of the seconds that he was on screen. Did you notice this guy? I did this time around. So this was my second time watching the movie. 
obviously, as soon as I saw that thumbnail ad a couple weeks ago, I, I had to click it and watch it. It's only 99 cents to rent it on Amazon compared to most movies that are like three bucks. I sprung so. the full, I think it was 249 to purchase an SD copy so I can watch it for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I hope that's exactly what you do. Give it your daily watch. <laughs> I did notice this like frog man though. He's just got like a big saggy mouth. He's all like green and brown. Yeah, a weird looking dude. And it cuts to him for some effective, like, I don't know if you could call it a reaction shot because his face can't really move. <laughs> but I did enjoy just seeing him up close, like wobbling around. Yeah, he's like bobbing his head up and down. But as this bunch of barbarians is crashing through the door, Etain tells Max, your book can help us. Very strange line delivery. I think the way she should have read it is, your book can help us. <laughs> it's like, why the emphasis on the can? Were people saying, can't? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, was there a it's debate a that it couldn't? Was this a discussion that you had previously? Why are you saying it that way? It's a book of real magic. Yeah. But he does use the book to escape back to regular peaceful Earth. So, I don't know. It seems like it really just helped Max. Because now he's safe and not being pillaged. Right. And like Dan mentioned earlier, this is kind of the weird pace of the drama in the movie. Is that Max can really go back and forth at any time. And if he can do that, it really drains the like dramatic power of the conflict in the fantasy world. Right, because he, he literally... oh. Yeah, castle's getting invaded. Guess I'll go home and eat my spaghetti and meatballs and do my pre-algebra homework. Yeah, see you later, guys. And he, and then when he does get home, I was baffled because his mom... There's this whole thing where the mom is like, well, where were you? Oh, I was at a friend's. Well, you missed dinner. Do you need to eat? No, I ate there. But, like, didn't he not go to school that day? And, like, hasn't he effectively been missing for 10 hours now? And I don't know. I just, it was very weird. It is pretty clearly the same day, I think. I took it that the parking lot scene we saw was at the end of the school day, not the beginning. Interesting. Okay, so does no time pass or does time pass one-to-one -one when you're in the fantasy world? I think maybe it was just a couple hours that he was there. It's also possible time doesn't pass. But, I mean, if he just went there and had the dinner, mm -hmm. uh, it really, the question is, how long does it take to walk from the door to the castle? <laughs> and that's a little more credit than we need to give this film. <laughs> Probably true. If you want to make a map as you watch it every day for the rest of your life, keep me posted. <laughs> we could go do some location scouting and try and make an educated guess. But, yeah, there are some interesting things here in this back-in-the-real-world stretch of scenes. It really struck me how badly the parents are dubbed. At least one review I read seemed to think that every line in the film is dubbed, which I guess is possible. Max didn't really seem like he was lip-syncing. No, I definitely don't think... I, I did read something that significant portions of the audio sync with the video were way off, which I think mm -hmm. contributes to it. But I also agree that Max has always felt pretty in sync. So 
Maybe some of the lines were dubbed. I don't know. It, it didn't feel dubbed to me. It just felt like bad audio sync. I don't know. Right. Yeah, it could be some of column A, some of column B. But whenever, like, Max's dad would talk, it seemed like his volume was out of place. And, like, his intonation was weird. Just, like, he wasn't actually talking to anyone. Like, he was just recording a line. I gotta say, I, I was not prepared for the dad. He's, like, halfway between Daniel Stern and Woody Harrelson. And he's got this... Not very flattering, untidy, bald hairdo thing. Yeah, I was going to say he struck me as like Daniel Stern 2 with worse hair. So glad we're picking up on the same things. If I were a Hollywood casting agent, I would hire him to play like a low-level thug in an 80s period piece about drug dealing or something. Like he didn't strike me as dad material, but I don't know. (laughs) I'm keeping an ear out for possible episode titles and not dad material might be a contender (laughs) also one of the spells that max practices because he sits up in his room there's like discussion that he's going to keep crimble the mouse as a pet and and once he starts like keeping him in a cage that's a little weird because we know that he's like sentient right and also just the whole thing that he's back spending time at his house Enough to, like, establish that he's going to keep a pet mouse when we know there's a fantasy battle going on is a little strange. I think it's implied that only he can hear Krimble's voice. So I guess, like, when he becomes the magician, he inherits this power or something. I don't know. But there's, like, a lot of gags around the mom being surprised that the mouse is there or saying something or... It was kind of dumb and repetitive. Right. No, I agree that the other characters don't understand that the mouse talks. They just hear mouse sounds. Mm -hmm. But one of the spells that Max practices from the book up in his room is a fog spell. (laughs) It just fills the room with a bad digital effect of fog. Like sparkles in the fog, yeah. Yeah, but like... It's important that he needs to dispel the fog before his mom comes up into the room and sees it. And it made me wonder, like, is this secretly a stoner masterpiece? <laughs> like, is, do you just go and hotbox your room with your talking mouse? And if I were high, would this be speaking to me more? I think they missed the explicit jokes about it. But given that it's a 14 year old boy in his bedroom and there's smoke hanging and he's avoiding parental detection it's a reasonable joke to make or a reasonable uh conclusion to jump to and it becomes like his signature spell too i mean if you are a harry potter fan you'll recall that in the later books harry has some discussion i think it's with dumbledore but oh you can't develop a signature trick harry you're using expelliarmus too much because it'll be your tell And your enemies will know how to fight you if you use the same move all the time. Well, this fog is going to be Max Magician's Expelliarmus. He's just going to keep casting it and constantly be surrounded (laughs) in this cloud. I like your your implied alternate reading of this film that this is in fact the story of the weird old man in the neighborhood giving some hallucinogenic drugs to the local teenager and him experiencing a different world. When he first ingests them. 
<laughs> That's right. Eventually, though, we do go back to the fantasy realm. If Max himself doesn't go back right away, we are back there in pretty short order. And we finally get to meet our villain, who is named Dagda. And he has just full-out makeup on. He's got big ram horns and, like, spotty green orc skin. What were your feelings on Dagda, Dan? How did his performance strike you? He is simultaneously the best thing and the worst thing about this movie. He is a, an untrained but enthusiastic actor playing a Power Rangers villain. And he is just camping it up. He has this tick where whenever there is a half second or more of silence, he goes, Dah! just like over and over again. And he talks in this weirdly affected voice that it sounds just like a person talking weird. It doesn't sound like a weird voice. It sounds like a person who needs to like cough up the mucus in their throat or something like that. But he's just like leaning into it. He's not leaving anything on the table. He's making weird faces and saying things weird. And I don't know. So on the one hand, like it's something and a lot of this film is nothing and he's something. But on the other hand, I'm not sure I like what the something he's bringing there is. The makeup is impressive. Absolutely. And uh, he goes all out for it, but he would probably rank number three on my most annoying characters list behind <laughs> Tim Tut Tad or whatever his name is. And Crimble. Oh, Crimble's number one for you? Number one for me, for sure. Oh, man, that's an honor. The problem with Crimble is that he's always there, and it's it's like, like, have you ever had a gnat fly into your ear, and you try to get it out, and it's the worst feeling in the world? Like, Crimble is a nonstop gnat in your ear, and, like, I was just begging to close the window and stop watching this movie on Amazon Prime, but I had to get through the hour and a half. <laughs> Well, good news. Now you own this movie. <laughs> yeah, I would say Dagda perfectly encapsulates both the film's strengths and weaknesses. He's got genuinely impressive makeup and, like, ironically impressive line delivery. Gotta love the ga-ba-da. Also, now I'm gonna be extra conscious if I ever actually find myself making any of those sounds. <laughs> It's like, I gotta not do this. I gotta not be like Dagda. Yeah, don't don't Dagda it. <laughs> There's one one weird thing about the the makeup. It's like very clearly ugly goblin makeup, bad guy makeup, no question. But there's a heavy exposition like five minutes of this film coming up. And he gets played as a romantic lead or like a potential romantic character to the queen of the good elves, whatever the hell they're called. And it's just like, you're still Dagda. Like, I could not buy it for even a second, you know? I think we have to really keep in mind what marriage was in the Middle Ages. It's like, <laughs> if you're a king, you marry a queen, you unite two kingdoms, and that's what it's for. Even if you got horns growing out of your head. Exactly. So as long as you got a castle to your name, you're... You got some matches lined up, potentially. And maybe that's still true today. Who can say? But Dagda has these two key minions, I think we got to shout out. 
One is named Worm. Or at least that's Dagda's term for him. I think it's literally his name, because other characters say it too. This is another trolley guy. And <laughs> every time he talked, I laughed. Because he has a very silly voice. One that I didn't find annoying. I, I legitimately, I thought it was pretty funny. He sounds a little like Dudley Do-Right. Like, oh, I'll, I can't even do it. I can't do an impression of what this dude sounds like. No, I, I agree. Uh, the weird thing is the makeup was cool, but it's not until deep in the second half of the film when he starts to get a maybe redemption arc that we actually see his makeup unobstructed and like kind of full center frame. And so it took me a while to actually appreciate that he's got like this bulbous nose and stuff. It's, it's some cool makeup and prosthetics. And then the other minion kind of the captain of the guard is this guy whose name is Fetch. And he's just a Latino dude with like long <laughs> flowing hair and leather armor. And he doesn't really seem like he belongs alongside all the trolls and goblins. That's what I'm saying is like either they got the full gamut facial enhancing prosthetics professionally done or like... Someone had a 9.99 face makeup kit they bought on Amazon, or since it was 2002, probably bought it Kmart, and they just pulled some dude and said, "Here, you're fetch. Hey, buddy, guess what? Here, we're gonna give you some gray spots right here. You're fetch." And this guy is essentially the poor man's Antonio Banderas. That's what I thought of. He sounds a lot like Antonio Banderas. Interesting. I can see it. And. He's like the long-suffering minion. I mean, I guess they are both long-suffering, but Fetch especially leans into, like, always rolling his eyes at whatever Dagda says. That's true, yeah. But Fetch never speaks up. He never stands up for himself. He never defects. There's one time where he's like, idiot, he says about Dagda as Dagda is walking away. That's the extent of it, though. Yeah. I will say, kudos for getting a cave to film the Dagda scenes in. Like, this whole movie I was thinking about, how easy would it be for Gauntley to go out and make this movie? And some of the things, most of the things, would be not too hard. But I do admire them for reaching out and securing this location. Yeah, my... We might have to take a trip to Natural Bridge at some point, too. That would be fun. Yeah, my friend Eric, I was thinking of him a lot. Um, I've mentioned him to you several times brian in fact i think you've met him at least once yeah he was you were both at my birthday party and you might have met before then too but he's also someone who's into filmmaking and he actually made a fantasy web series that i was thinking of a lot because he's also like a local you know non-professional making a fantasy themed story and he was always talking about how it's not just finding a place, but it's getting the proper permission to film there. You like have to have something written down or else you have to like have enough verbal confidence that they would never press you for having filmed there. And I can see how that would be a hassle to get a cave, for example. Right. So the middle act of the film, there's a lot of meandering, if that's not clear yet. There's a lot of back and forth between Earth and what's going on in the various kingdoms. 
I just kind of want to give a general sense of the arc. And please remember that there is no Wikipedia summary for this film for us to use as a guide. <laughs> which is not a hassle that comes up too often. There was at least one request by a fan to cover some more obscure media. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. But as it goes along, we get a couple battles between Dagda's forces, who are the older, fatter LARPers who have hammers, as I mentioned, <laughs> and the Bluebell forces, who are the younger, thinner LARPers with sticks. I like older, fatter LARPers on the, sh the a candidate for a title. And as these battles are progressing, Max sort of gradually lends a more valuable helping hand via his magic. Like at one point he makes some sticks leap off the ground, I guess, into the hands of the fighters. And it's obvious that they just threw them on the ground to start with and then they played the footage backwards. Uh, I loved this moment when he does the spell. Right before it, there's a warrior who is just like an Asian man in like... A t-shirt and pants. He doesn't look like he is dressed up for a fantasy film. And he shouts, Staff! I guess he needs a staff, but just like in the middle of battle, shouting the word staff. And that's the trigger for him to do the spell to send the staffs out. I guess he lost his staff or something like that. So he shouted, Staff! Hate it when you lose your staff. And, you know, in between these different battles, there will be periods where the groups are recouping and regrouping. And there's some discussion I noticed this time around that like Dagda and his lieutenants are talking about like recruiting other groups of trolls and unseely forces and like that their army is growing. But we don't ever really see the group grow. There's never really any new people there. Uh, I didn't notice it at all the first time, but I, I think they're trying to give the sense of like in Lord of the Rings... You know, there's a lot made out of, oh, Saruman's forces are going to join Sauron's forces. And then they'll have this big army. But we don't really ever see anybody besides these three guys planning the military maneuvers. So it doesn't really land. Also, at one of the times when Princess Attain and Max are regrouping, the princess tells this backstory Dan alluded to a bit ago where we get kind of a prequel in mini the story of the conflict so far and how Dagda came to plague the lands. And yeah, it's like this semi-romantic scene between Dagda and the queen. And it's very weird. It's, it's a really bizarre segment of the film overall because I could be wrong. I don't know... Like, we get names of a lot of characters and races, and it, like, fully introduces this idea of the rings here. It's like an exposition dump that goes on for five or ten minutes that has multiple prequel segments that the temporal continuity of those segments was not obvious to me. Like, are we talking a week before, a year before, a generation before, a couple hours before? Whatever it was, it wasn't clear to me. Just like all of a sudden we're naming rings and, and kingdoms and species and things. And for the things that I enjoyed about this movie, the mythology of it was not one. So this was when I checked my watch 
and was alarmed to learn there were still 40 minutes left in the runtime. <laughs> yeah, this is not an especially long movie, but it feels pretty long. <laughs> I get the sense that this was the point where, like, the screenwriter or whoever developed the lore came out from behind the camera and said, Hey guys, you really got to work in some more of my material. <laughs> we're, we're leaving way too much on the cutting room floor. People are going to want to know about, like, the financial relationship between the trolls and the elves. <laughs> the one thing I liked about this prequel segment is, so the queen doesn't marry Dagda, instead marries a knight. And when this knight comes on, he actually kind of has some Hollywood intensity presence. I, I like this guy. I wanted more of him in the story. He's like, uh, he's ready to throw fists with Dagda, and he's got some some fire in his eyes. And he's kind of got, like, a a jawline too. I, th- I thought that he, uh, he had presence beyond what many of his peers had. Totally. You're nailing every talking point. <laughs> yeah. Cause Dagda shows up and basically lays out, man, you should have married me because then we'd have control of like mining resources from underground in addition to agricultural resources of the forest, and we'd be an economic powerhouse. And Queen Belle Phoebe, which is a pretty good name, says, dude, what are you talking about? You're like a gross troll man. <laughs> but then he just kidnaps her and takes her back to his hellscape, uh, which prompts her husband, this guy who clearly thinks he's in a real-ass movie, <laughs> comes down to get her back and yeah he's like the handsomest dude in the film he's got like a well-trimmed medievalish king beard and he's come to get the queen back and they do give the queen back so there's kind of just some more pointless back and forth here because they didn't even put up a fight they're like the king is famous and well-known throughout all the kingdoms, and Dagda didn't tell anybody that he kidnapped the queen, so the orc guards just let him in. It's like, well, that's not very dramatic. And the king comes in and he says, give me the queen back. And Dagda says, oh, you got me. Okay, take her back. It's like, <laughs> well, that's not very dramatic either. Right. And then, like, right away, Dagda sends Fetch to go poison the queen like Snow White poison apple style, so she falls into a sleep. It's like, this is definitely a script that could have used a couple more passes. <laughs> it's Get- like, you could condense some things here. Yeah, I agree. Let's just say that if they had hired me to do some script edits, the, the movie would have looked quite a bit different. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing your revision of well, the story. I don't want to get your hopes up because... It was too far gone. It was not redeemable. Yeah, I was going to say, is there more to it than just, let's not do this? <laughs> no, there's not. That that was the extent of my notes. That's okay. I, when we come back with part two, I'm sure Dan will have... Yeah. No, I'll do a rewrite on this. Watch the film five more times and he'll <laughs> he'll have something for us. Somewhere along the way, the great wizard Feyun shows up. <laughs> To give Max some pointers. I mentioned I was not prepared for Max's dad. I was super not prepared for Feyun, or however you say his name. So, Feyun, he's 
this big black dude who has an enormous, like, Fu Manchu fake beard glued on his face. And he he is just acting the hell out of the role. <laughs> I want to set the stage even more than that, because here's what we know about Fei Yun. He's the wizard of legend. He's he's like the King Arthur type, or the maybe the Merlin type. The one who's the herald of the great magic power. He's the guardian wizard or something like that. And he's kind of mentioned almost in hushed tones. And so he's this old wizard dude. What do you, or he's this ancient wizard dude. What are you expecting? I'm like an old, wizened, decrepit guy who's very mysterious. But he's just like a young, tall, buff, black guy. And he has a Fu Manchu. What do we This is like Irish mythology. Why is a dude wearing a Fu Manchu? I was my jaw was open as I as we met Feyun. But I unironically or maybe ironically love the way this guy delivers his lines. He's just got this deep rich voice and he is convinced of the things that he says. I agree, yeah. He's good. When he shows up, we get like a vertigo shot dolly zoom like the world like warps behind him as we get this zoom in on his face (laughs) he says i am feyun i have tasted the summit of knowledge and drank from the well of the moon (laughs) and this was another line that had me thinking is this a stoner masterpiece (laughs) like i'm gonna fill my room with fog and i'm gonna taste the summit of knowledge i'm gonna drink from the well of the moon yeah and Feiyun very helpfully is willing to train Max. So we get a an earnest attempt at a training montage. Some of the things here I liked quite a bit. I agree. We get the loudest blaring of the quote unquote fake Enya. It's just like vaguely Celtic melancholy chanting. And one of the training exercises that they do, I'm not quite sure how they're doing it. They have this, like, weird stick yo-yo that Max can, like, revolve around his head. And they're passing this stick yo-yo thing back and forth through the air. And it looks pretty good, I thought, comparatively. Yeah, I agree. And there's this one recurring bit of... So I guess, like, if you're a teenager who is not socially adjusted and you're learning magic, one of the things you get is like the expanding magic staff. So I've seen this in other real life videos where you can basically hit a button and the, or I assume they're hitting a button or something and the staff comes out. It's like you're holding a little thing and it expands. And like, this is shown like three times throughout the film. And he also does it during the training montage. And then he shrugs at Feyun. Guess I'm still going to be me. Still going to do my corny things. Man, perfect way of addressing that moment. I was like, yeah, we get this moment of attempted humor. This, like, wacky, still doing his, you know, IRL stage magician tricks where he's got the handkerchiefs and the magic wands. And I guess I'm still going to be me. Captures that spirit perfectly. We get another training montage where Max is training in physical fighting, getting quarterstaff tips from Princess Etain, 
And I like this training montage too because their method consists entirely of beating the shit out of Tom Tit Tut. <laughs> yeah, no, this was good. And I, I thought that Princess Attain hadn't really done too much in terms of like anything other than just stepping around and stoically delivering lines. But she had some physical grace in this training montage. I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm glad that she's not like a total, that she actually brings something here. And there is one point, though, during this where she very visibly, like, breaks character and, like, relaxes her shoulders and, like, tilts her head to the side. And I'm, I would bet money that that was, like, where the director or someone was standing and she thought that the scene had cut or like, was that, did I do that right? Like looking for affirmation or something like that, because she clearly was breaking character for a second there. <laughs> well, then that means she was doing enough of an acting job that she could tell the difference. Some of these people, you probably wouldn't know whether they were in character or not. Meanwhile, back in the cave, Dagda's advisors are telling him, hey, man. Max Magician is training up. You know, he's he's punching the meat at the meat processing plant. He's running up the Philadelphia courthouse steps. He's getting ready for the fight. And you gotta watch out for this threat. And Dagda just keeps blowing him off. Oh, Fayoun is dead. Max Magician is a nothing. He's a child actor. He's worse <laughs> than Jansen Panettiere. I don't have to pay attention to anything that Max Magician is doing. But it's like, dude... Don't ignore your military intelligence when you're waging a war. It's a bad plan. Yeah. You have these lieutenants for a reason. To be fair, I would not be afraid of anyone who has an unbuttoned button-up shirt with a dark t-shirt underneath. It's like, if you have that look, you're immediately not intimidating to me. Even if you're training with Feyun? Perhaps if you're training with Feyun. At least the instinct is still there for me. But you're right, if, if your intelligence is telling you, you probably gotta listen. After he's repeatedly blown off, Worm, not Fetch, decides to defect. He's gonna turn face. He's gonna join up with Max Magician. And so he reaches out to him out in the woods, and Max Magician is won over. But when he takes him back to the castle, Princess Attain is very not... She's like, get him out of here. He's a troll. He works for the enemy. I'm not even going to hear this. Get Worm away from me. Which is, like, pretty cold. I mean, I guess it is logical, but, like, are you not going to trust Max? He's won, like, three battles for you. Yeah, this moment was really odd. It was like, all of a sudden, we need to have a thing where turns out the good guys are a little bit racist, too. And they need to learn their lesson as well. She also, she doesn't just say, I don't trust this guy. He's been working with Dagda for decades. She says, and you're a fool for trusting him. And if there's one thing Max Magician does not like, it's being called a fool. He gets really mad and, and storms off here. Fool. It's one of those phoned-in late second act twists that every romantic comedy has. But again, an abrupt about face. Max gets like an apology text in the... <laughs> Uh, sorry. Or I think Attain sends like a messenger hawk or something and says, my bad, we actually need you to fight this war. So <laughs> come on back and we'll hear Worm out. And this sets the stage for the big climactic 
Helm's Deep wannabe battle where Fetch is leading Dagda's armies, which again, just this older, fatter LARP crew. But it seems like they're winning. They're overpowering the other side, and maybe the forces of darkness are going to carry the day. This is when Max Magician returns and casts the climax spell in his book to awaken the sleeping army. Out of nowhere, raising the, I don't know if they're dead or what, they got these legit suits of armor. I was like, God damn, why didn't you raise the, the soldiers earlier? Bring these bad boys out. They're ready to finish business. Right. So what this reminded me of and is but a pale imitation of is the final scene of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Have you ever seen that movie, Dan? I actually haven't. I know it's high on your personal movie rankings on our website, earnthis.net. Oh, yeah. Easily top 10. And it's because of this ending. Because in that film, which is a 1971 Disney movie, kind of the spiritual successor to Mary Poppins, it's set during World War II, and Angela Lansbury plays a witch in training. And at the climax of the movie, she casts a spell that makes all of the old medieval armor in a museum come to life and march off to go fight the Nazis. Oh, man. And there are some incredible effects. You know, all, well, mostly practical. I don't know what green screen really counts as. There's just a mix of effects technologies at work to make that fight look really good. And I think at least a couple people in the room might have been thinking of this scene when they made the ending of Max Magician. Uh, But what you get is these guys who, yes, do have real suits of armor. The first that we've really seen in the movie. Just full plate. But the way they enter is they climb up out of a pile of leaves. They just kind of half-heartedly sit up. They just happen to be right there, yeah. Yeah, and it cuts to Max Magician saying, Awesome! <laughs> so we're supposed to take it to be awesome because that's what Max Magician thinks. But honestly, I kind of liked it. I thought it was cool. If I put this shot in a movie that I made, I would be proud of it. Yeah. I mean, as far as... Stupid-ass things happening in this movie. Five suits of armor rising out of the pile of leaves next to Max Magician is far from the stupidest. And so these suits of armor march into the fray and take back the initiative. They win the battle pretty quickly. Even more quickly, Max is confronting Dagda. I don't know if they'd even been face-to-face at all before this point, but... Max casts a spell that covers Dagda in mice. There's like 15 or 20 real mice running around on his chest. And he's just going, bah! Bah! And then he becomes a mouse himself. <laughs> I don't know. Was that immediately clear? I couldn't. I was checked out enough that I don't know if I could have told you that that had happened in the moment. But I, I don't think it was in the moment. I think we find out after the battle that he's a mouse now. And twist, Crimble is a human. Or like, whatever the elves are. No, so so here's the thing. He dies. He's dead, or he's on the verge of death. And for whatever reason, Max is just heartbroken, devastated that Crimble died. Got this real strong bond with him. He's like, I use all of my magic for a wish that Crimble will live. And Crimble turns into a person doesn't make any sense i don't know how it happened i was really mad at max at first because if you're gonna use all your power on a wish 
I Googled it. According to Orkin.com, Orkin is a pest control company. The average lifespan of a mouse is 12 to 18 months. So, like, if you were using all your wish power to get a couple more months of freaking Crimble, then that is a waste of a wish, my man. But I guess if it turns him from mouse to human, or humanoid at least. Okay, that's actually a pretty powerful use of a, a wish there. So, there was at least something that came out of it. Oh, that's a good time wish. <laughs> so now Max Magician is victorious. Everybody goes back to the castle for a party. The queen wakes up from her poison slumber and says, hey, good job, man. And we finally see one of the rings of legend that have been mentioned like maybe three times in the movie. And the queen gives one to Max and I think says... With this, you can come back anytime you want. But, like, didn't the book do that already? It, going in and out of this world is not really a hard process. But Max heads home, and he discovers somewhere along the way that, yes, Dagda is now a mouse himself. And so the final shot of the film is the Dagda mouse ranting and raving, trapped in the mouse cage. But, Brian, what is the second last shot of the movie? Okay, so the second to last shot of the movie, we know that Crimble is a human now. And he's, like, followed Max into the real world. So there's, like, a moment where Max confronts the bullies again. And Crimble, who's a black kid with elf ears. But anyway, he walks up to the bullies and is like, Hey, man, you gotta respect Max Magician, because he's a hero who saved the fantasy realm. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> How would you react to this character telling you this revelation? I think I would say, what's wrong with your ears? <laughs> Which is what the bully says. <laughs> well, then that at least is some realism in this film. I don't know. I would be like, how do I quickly exit this conversation? That would, I think, be my reaction. <laughs> yeah, I'd rather go talk to Mr. Tim. There's one other truly horrifying twist here at the end, though. Do you remember this? Yes, indeed. Because back in Max's bedroom with all the Houdini posters and what have you, he, like, hears a noise, and he goes to go open his closet. And what three characters are sitting there giggling in the closet <laughs> but human crimble worm and tom tit tot it's just one of the scariest endings to any movie i've ever seen if i were the mom and i discovered that a strange whatever you want to call crimble at this point and then two like grown-ass men with like weird prosthetics on their face I would be like, we're moving out of this house and I'm maybe putting you in an institution because how did we get to this point? <laughs> I would certainly have those people arrested. What are they living in a closet for? Why? And yeah, Max doesn't tell them to leave. He doesn't ask why they're there. He just kind of shuts the door on them giggling. It was a little like at the end of Labyrinth when Jennifer Connelly is back in the real world and she looks into the mirror and, you know, she's kind of grappling with, oh, I'm not going to have my fantasy world anymore. i got to put aside my childhood. And then in the mirror, the labyrinth inhabitants start popping in, in the reflection. And they're like, but if you need us, we can return at any time. And then they all manifest in the room and, like, have a party. But 
here it was much stranger, much more off-putting. There's not really any reflection on what it is and what it means. It's just here they are in the closet. Yeah, here's the version of version of if you're changing clothes, then worm will peek out of the little slits in the closet. It's like what is going on here? <laughs> and it's like, are these the characters you would want to be celebrating with? No. They're the last characters I'd want to be. Oh, good news. You get King Dagda in your mouse cage, too. It's like the foremost unpleasant characters with your mom as the runner up because she's always the buzzkill. It's like, wow, you won this round, Max. Guess what? You get to spend your time with Tom Tit Tat rhyming to you. Well, the place where your toothbrush has been placed is the one where you don't know the space. It's like, just give me my goddamn toothbrush. Tom Tit Tat, like, what are you talking about? And that's Max Magician 2002. That's his happy ending. He doesn't get a kiss from the princess. Yeah, it's like, it's like, bring a Tane around, at least Fayune. <laughs> you know, somebody cool. Get get that Hurla guy to come back, give some more powerful line deliveries. But I bet he's also still going down to Mr. Tim or whatever his name is. <laughs> so... Some other things we want to talk about before we throw a rating on this thing. What did you what did you like? What did you not like? Yeah. Where is your headspace at in the moment? I'm ready for my my bombshell hot take on this movie. You ready? I'm ready. The actor who plays Max is actually pretty good. I expected him to be horrible. He's not. He's like the least bad thing about this movie other than some of the makeup. I think he comes across a little worse than he actually is because the script is so bad. And there's like one of the editing things they do in this movie is like somebody will say something and whereas like a competent movie would cut right to the person who has to next say something. It like lingers for three quarters of a second too long on the character so that like the rhythm of conversation is just totally disrupted. It just feels like people reciting their lines. And I think that makes everybody seem worse than they actually are. But I don't know. I thought... Uh, this this actor playing Max, his name is Timothy Stultz. He's kind of empathetic. He's like acting against a mouse and kind of doing it. Like you almost believe he's talking with him. He actually seems to have some interiority where he's like thinking about things and reacting to things and has some things that he cares about on his own. He might even be the best actor of the bunch unless you want to like throw Dagda in there for being campy, but at least to the people playing straight. I thought he was good. He's he's not worse than Jansen for me. He's he's like only, I don't know, 25% of a Jansen here for me. So that's that's my hot take. The kid actor, not actually bad. Nice. Yeah, I think my opinion is a little bit colored by the picture that they use of him on the poster. It's terrible. Where he's looking into the book and he's just got the dopiest expression on his face. He's got his mouth hanging open and like his eyes not really focused. But you're right. His performance... He can carry the film. Like, I'm glad that he's the one we spend the most time with. So, riddle me this. Could he replace Jansen in Last Day of Summer? Yes, he could absolutely play the Jansen role. Probably better than Jansen. I think he would have been a little too old by that point. That's probably true. Last Summer was five years after this. So. Okay. I mean, that's one thing that I, I'm going to give as a caveat in all my good things is that this movie is from a while ago. Right. Like, you wouldn't have had all the same computer technology 
to bring this about as you do now. You'd have some of it. But, you know, if you were making this in 2001 or whatever, or, or early 2002, in some ways that alone is a little impressive. One more thing about this actor who played Max, Timothy Stultz. I looked it up. His birth date, I don't want to dox myself here because this, his birth date is public information, but his birth date is double digits number of days away from my birth date. He is very close in age to me. So like if I had made a movie in 2001, 2002, I would have been this guy. So that made me appreciate him a little bit more. And it's like, I don't know. Could I have seen myself in eighth grade or whatever this was, ninth grade? I, I could respect it. Yeah. And I mean, just think people would be talking about you on a podcast now. They'd say, <laughs> look at this movie where Dan Stalkup plays Prestidigitation Peter. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Cantrip Carl. That's right. Conjurer Chris. Also, I mean, I was just seeing everything in this movie in gauntly terms like what would it have taken to make this with basically no budget in this area completely removed from any kind of studio setting so in a way i have to respect just how many people they were able to get on board with this vision i really did pay attention to the credits just seeing how many like extras were involved in the catering services and all the locations that they got it's a legitimate production. I mean, it's a production. I don't know if legitimate is the right word. It had a beginning, middle, and an end, <laughs> and it resulted in a feature-length film. So There you go. This is a real movie you can go and watch. For 99 cents or, again, it might have been $2.49, and then you can watch it as many times as you want. It also gave me a little bit of a vibe of the TV show Wishbone. Did you ever watch that back in the day? Okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I did see that show. So I loved Wishbone, and I still love it. But for any of the uninitiated, the premise was it told the story of great works of literature, and the setup was we'd get introduced to a scene taking place in the suburb town of, I think it was called Oakdale, and there was a kid and his friends having some run-of-the-mill everyday suburban white kid conflict <laughs> in Oakdale. And then the protagonist's dog, a Jack Russell Terrier, would imagine a work of literature that paralleled the conflict in the episode. So really, you know, in like a 25-minute episode, you got to have two stories. You got to have the town story and then a recreation of the masterpiece of literature. And all of these were recreated with, you know, minimal budget, but they would, like, do a pretty good job of telling the story of, like, you know, Romeo and Juliet, or The Tempest, or Don Quixote. And they would always have cool costumes and set pieces. And all the actors had to play against a protagonist who was a dog. This was very formative on me. And... Not only is it opposite a dog, but his voice acting is edited in post. I mean, maybe they have somebody reading the lines off screen, but I always feel like that's an underrated hard thing of acting opposite green screen or, or animal or inanimate object is like that person isn't talking to you. How are you hearing the things you need to hear and reacting to that when you can't even hear it exactly how they will be saying it? 
that's a really good point. So this movie is not nearly as charming, but it has a little taste of that sense of telling an epic tale with a limited budget and having that same kind of suburban scope. Right. Like when it cuts to a suburban house, I believe that's a suburban house. <laughs> Definitely. And one more time, credit to the legitimately good makeup team. Like, that was actually maybe not, like, A-list Hollywood, but if you showed me that in, like, a C-list horror movie or something, I wouldn't blink twice at that. Like, that was legit Hollywood makeup there. Right, yeah, they could go to work for, like, a big haunted house and prep the people each day. Anything else you wanted to call out as being specifically good, Dan? One thing I want to talk with with you about in a minute when we get to the is it good section, there were moments here that were unintentionally funny to me, like the weird magic trick in the parking lot scene and one or two other line deliveries that were just so weird that it made me laugh. And I, I guess I give credit to the movie for circling back on badness to get back to goodness. It had a little bit of that from time to time. Okay, yeah. I I mentioned I laughed when Max fell down the stairs. Yeah. It's like, how much is intentional? I I feel like it was intentional because it was, like, not a very good fall. Right. Like, he was trying to fall, but it it gave me a little bit of humor there, so. All right, well, then it's time to really dig into things we didn't (laughs) like, that we haven't spoken about enough yet, which I think there's probably still at least a handful of things. So some not-so-good things. One thing that really bothered me. So they have inserted in these sound effects. I don't know what the proper term is when you add a a sound effect in post, because these were clearly added after the actual filming. And they are so bad. They're all like the stock, like probably what's built into the film editing software that they bought in 2001. Like footsteps and fake laughs and screams and sticks smacking together and bangs and it is very off-putting whenever they added sound effects and you always know when they've done it yeah it's really bad the footsteps especially got to me because there's parts where characters are running and like the footstep sound is too fast it's like faster than they're moving it's like very disconcerting it also needs to be reiterated. We, I mean, we've hinted at it. The acting in this movie is, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't get much joy dunking on people who were just clearly non-professionals making a thing. But the acting is absolutely non-professional and distractingly stiff. I've already talked about the weird parking lot scene with the girls that don't sound like they're from planet Earth when they're talking. But the one that really got me is Mr. Tim. He just he always looks like he's trying really hard to remember his lines. He just like it's always right there. They might have had to do multiple takes because the first three times he couldn't remember what he had to say about the real book of magic or whatever. They just there's no naturalism in the delivery of their line where I believe that this is a entity with its own thoughts It's like a line-spitting machine, and I don't know. It made me less invested in the characters than I potentially could have been. But again, 
it's like it's kind of hard to pick at one thing because the various cheap technical components all feed on each other. The acting is bad, but it's made worse because the editing is really bad. There's all these effects where they like do star wipes, basically like, oh, when they go from world to world, they do like a 2001 era movie maker splash cut where it looks like a, a drop of water is splashing. And I don't know, just everything makes everything look worse. And so it's kind of hard for me to isolate what what in particular isn't that good, but it's a lot of things, I guess. Yes, it is a lot of things. One other thing I wanted to say about Mr. Tim that didn't come up in our plot recap. At one point, we find out that Mr. Tim is a wizard. That's simultaneously not a surprise at all. I mean, we we knew he was in touch with the magical world because he got the thing at the start of the movie. <laughs> uh, but then also, it's not significant at all either because he doesn't really do anything after we find out that he's a wizard. In fact, they may not even speak about or show Mr. Tim after that's revealed. That's another problem with the movie. Let me preface this by saying Fairfax County Public Library, you can have up to 50 books checked out on any single library card. And I have two daughters and I'm always checking out a lot of books for them and always pushing it up to the, the 50 limit. I was more checked out on this lore of this story than I was in the entire history of my library card at the Fairfax County Library. I just couldn't care less when they were talking about rings and what's the unsealies and what is Dagda's relationship with anything at this point. I was just like, all right, let's let's get to the credits. Let's get to the denouement where we see what actually happens to Max here. As I mentioned, when I looked at my, I don't know what you call the bar at the bottom of a, of a stream. And I saw that there was 45 minutes left. I was like, okay, let's, (laughs) let's power through this bad boy. Yes. But in the prequel scene, Dagda rides a horse. So I like that. (laughs) I like the guy in the crazy makeup having to get up on and control a horse. So, I think I'm at a place now where I am ready to rate this thing. Are you in the same place, Dan, or you got some more you want to talk about? Just just a couple more things. One is Crimble the mouse. He's the top of my list for most annoying. By the way, my top four are Crimble, the Tommy Titty. What's his name? Tot, Tim Tot Tat. That's what I have written down. I think that's wrong. Look, it's Tom Tit Tot. Okay. He's my number two. King Dagda is my number three. The Dark Horse number four is Max's mom. She's just a buzzkill the whole time. I think I already mentioned that. But Crimble, just circling back to Crimble here, he's like always doing quips and they're bad. He does the K-I-S-S-I-N-G sitting in a tree rhyme at one point and he does it unironically. And that was when I knew Crimble was at the top of my ranking. You're not a fan of that one, Dan? No. Well, I don't know. I mean, no. <laughs> it's like it's not clever or funny it's like a a thing you can say it doesn't enhance this like who wrote that out and said this would be funny if we had him do that rhyme that would not be funny the answer is no it's not but i don't know maybe i'm just a curmudgeon the last thing before we get to is it good so i just want to ask you brian when we ask is it good 
does your conception of is it good ever account for, I guess, ironic appreciation of the ineptness of things? So, for example, is there room for classic great bad movies like The Room or even Troll 2 to be higher than the obvious one out of eight? It's a good question. We haven't really had to grapple with this with our selection so far because Robert was just unforgivably awful. Right. No, no enjoyment in the badness of it. I felt no redemption there. And also it wasn't really built up for me that like if you had told me, oh, Robert is something that people go to and throw spoons, maybe I would perceive it differently. But it really does set the bar for what the bottom of the barrel is. Um... I don't know, because personally, I do hold appreciation for So Bad They're Good movies, and I don't know whether that translates over to our scale. I guess we're going to find out. And and maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll tweak that gauge a little bit as we go along in the show. Maybe once we do our location tour, we'll feel a boosted appreciation. Perhaps. I will say when I watched Troll 2, and I added it to my movie rankings because as we've mentioned a couple times i have been rating every movie i watch on the is a good scale and saving that to a spreadsheet i gave troll 2 a six out of eight i don't feel very good about that because i feel like you either need to go all the way up or all the way down on that one but i will say that my perception of the scale does account for some perhaps so bad it's good appreciation all right well that's good to know i'll say troll 2 I put as my number 11 top favorite film uh, back when I made my list in 2013 because I said I couldn't in good consciousness put it in my top 10. <laughs> Seemed like it didn't belong there, but I had to give it as high praise as I could without that distinction. Sure. So now that you've heard almost two hours of commentary, where are you at, Dan? Is Max Magician and the Legend of the Rings a good film? Drumroll. No, it's not. It is not a good movie. Is it very not good? This is the one I chewed on for a long time. I really thought a lot about this. There were times when I was watching it that I was locked in sure that it was a one out of eight. Very not good. A special bar of badness that we've set when I was just not particularly enjoying myself and the movie was just going and going and going. But then we get King Dagda hamming it up and duh-ing for a bit. Or we get, I don't know, just some weird line delivery that made me laugh unexpectedly. And when all is said and done, the combination of all of the things feeding into it, whether it's, hey, it's kind of cool that they a local group made this and it was locally sourced. And, hey, it's kind of cool that it was low-budget indie made, but they still had cool makeup. And man, it's nice we get to spend time out in the woods with the oversaturated green leaves. And there's some funny, ironically enjoyable stuff here. I'm just going to give it a 2 out of 8. I'm going to say that this is a not good movie, but I'm not going to give it the worst brand of all, the, the dreaded one. So I had enough appreciation for what it overall brought that it, it barely escapes that that bottom of the pit. But I've mostly spent this time talking about how it's not quite a one, but it is a two. 
which sounds positive in its spin, but let that not distract from the overall amateurish, borderline incompetent filmmaking, nightmarish script of a film. That said, I did subscribe to r slash max magician which there's a subreddit dedicated to this universe so i'm one of 24 subscribers the (laughs) the top rated post is a joke about how let's not make l-o-t-r memes lord of the rings memes let's instead make l-o-t-r memes legend of the rings memes and that has a solid five upvotes so that's the, the top but i'm a subscriber so ready for whatever content they bring Man, I hope you're I hope you become the admin one day. <laughs> what about you, Brian? How does it fare? So, I think we're not too far apart, but if you were in say the American public school grading system, where we're at about is like I think we're both around the 65% D, 64% F barrier point that we're hovering at here. And I'm falling just on the side of the one. (laughs) Very not good. With the proviso that this is not Robert. (laughs) Robert is like, you didn't turn in the homework at all. You got a zero. You weren't even in class that day. Whereas this is the very highest F you could have. It's like, is, is this Cirque de Freak? No. There's no John C. Riley. There's no Willem Dafoe. There's no cool circus shadow puppet opening credits. This is an inept film, but it is not charmless. People put forth an effort, even if it was, you know, the caterers <laughs> and the people keeping up the Renaissance fair and the people making their foam LARP weapons. It takes a village to make a feature film, and this movie brought the village together, for better or worse. It exists now, and 20 years later, you can still watch it. And it's captivated me enough that I am curious to see what shots I can recreate if we do pay a visit to the Renaissance Fair. Well, there you go. I I can't say that I hold that against you. I really toyed with giving out the one, but I had just enough affection in my heart, so... Yeah, no, we should uh, definitely consider heading out to the Ren Fair, seeing if we can find some of these locations. T- sorry, how wild would it be if we ran into Timothy Stoltz? Dude, I would be just amped. Give me a give me a, a, a cell phone photo, send it to all my friends, and say I met Max Magician. You jerkwads, is that something you can say you did? <laughs> then you smash an egg on their face and you walk away. Yeah, something like that. Well, thanks everybody for listening to our dissection of Max Magician. What is on the horizon for the goods, Dan? What comes next? So you just gave me a challenging work to consume, Brian. I have a challenging work for you to consume, but challenging in different ways. I'm going to be assigning you the 2000 experimental documentary film entitled as i was moving ahead occasionally i saw brief glimpses of beauty this is a documentary composed of home videos that's really all i know about it is that it's mostly or entirely made of home videos and it is 288 minutes 
which comes to about four hours and 45 minutes. Oh, well, compared to a thousand minutes for Gravity Falls, <laughs> that's brisk. But it is a documentary, so we'll have to see. Yeah, I don't know what to expect. I've heard mixed things about it and enough to intrigue me. And I'm avoiding spoilers otherwise. So I will watch this with a fairly uh, unpredisposed opinion of what this movie is. And uh, yeah, I I don't know what it's going to be, but it will certainly be something, or at least I hope it will be something in nearly five hours. So we'll see what we come up with. <laughs> something in there has got to be something. <laughs> Rule of large numbers. It'll be new for me, too. So I guess I'm glad you brought it to my attention. I'll have to be the judge of that when we watch. Certainly interested to check it out. I'll shift into Ten Commandments, Gone with the Wind, long movie mode. Sounds good. Yeah, this will probably be, unless you're going to count the pre-1920 serials that came out in multiple episodes, this will be the longest movie I've ever watched. So, All right. Now that you've heard from us, we want to hear from you. Email us a review of Max Magician or any film that we've previously discussed, and each week we'll read one of your reviews on the podcast. If we pick your review, we'll send you a $5 Amazon gift card, enough for a free movie rental. You can send your review to thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. That's thegoodsfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Brian, we got a review. Oh, wow. You want to read it? I do. It's from my brother, Will. He appeared on an episode a while ago, but he is one of the small number of people who keeps up with our show. And he wrote into us about our discussion of Gravity Falls from episode 50. Here's what he said. And listeners, I'm just going to warn you that this uh, letter, this email spoils both Gravity Falls and our review of Gravity Falls in terms of what we rated it. So uh, if you have any hesitation on that, now's the time to bail. Hello, the goods. I just got finished listening for the second time to your review of Gravity Falls. First off, I want to say that I could not be more pleased with your 16 out of 16 score. Dan mentioned my fondness for the show in a much appreciated shout out. But I want to say again, I love this show. You both touched on much of what I love about the show in your review but you've opened your inbox to listener comments and I'm going to take this opportunity to express my opinion. Here's my one sentence review. Gravity Falls succeeds at all it seeks to do. Let me elaborate. The heart of this show is the mystery of Gravity Falls and the relationship between its many oddball inhabitants. Specifically, of course, it focuses on the Mystery Shack family. One of the show's largest successes, and I don't know if you gave it enough praise for this, is the relationship between Mabel and Dipper. As someone with many siblings, there are a few pieces of fiction that really capture the odd mix of annoyance and fondness that is a close sibling bond. Dipper and Mabel are always at odds, but at the same time, there's little doubt that when push comes to shove to weird apocalypse, they will be there for each other. Really, the show is strong in the way it builds up the family around our centerpiece twins. All of the Mystery Shack folk are well-developed and great to spend time with, and the people of Gravity Falls work well as side characters. I think Brian hit it on the nose comparing them to the people of Springfield. I was shouted out in your review, so I feel the need to contextualize Dan's remarks. He mentioned at one point that I said that the middle stretch of season two as one of the high marks in Western animation. 
Even considering it's hyperbole, I stand by that statement. Not what he seems into the two stands is a thorough teardown of the mystery shack only to rebuild it to greater heights. I love any story that manages to satisfyingly shatter the status quo for a newer, more interesting version, and Gravity Falls pulls this off flawlessly. It's hard for me to pick a favorite character in the show, but understanding the work Stanley put in for Stanford, I secretly want to pick him out of respect. I have a million things to say about Gravity Falls and its many successes, but I'll leave my overall thoughts at that. It is an 8 out of 8 tour de good, and I would have taken any lower score as a personal offense. With that said, here are a few more positive things to add to this mini-review. There are some great running gags that never get old, such as Ducktective, Get Him Get Him Guy, and The Grappling Hook. It's relatively tight for a TV show, even shorter than something like Avatar The Last Airbender. It has fantastic character names, Dipper, Wendy Corduroy, Pacifica Northwest, Blendon Blandon. It has an absolute banger of an opening, and if you skip it, you have no heart. Gravity Falls treats its characters with overwhelming kindness. It is rare for a character to be a punchline because we were making fun of them. Dan laughed about how Seuss has given uncommon depth to his character, and I think that only serves to demonstrate my point. This show treats its characters well. My favorite episode you didn't mention is Golf Wars, I think. For some reason, that one sticks out in my mind as a great one. I'm halfway through season one in my Goods prompted rewatch, so we'll see if I feel that way again when I get there. This review probably ran a little longer than you expected, but I love the show. I was glad to hear your guys' thoughts on it, and I'm looking forward to 50 more episodes of insights on movies and TV shows. Yours truly, Will, Dan's bro who lives in Japan. Hey, thank you, Will. Yeah, thank you, first of all, for writing us in. It's our first submission. Maybe every review we read, assuming we get submissions in the future, we'll, we'll edit them down for time, but I wanted to read the full one since it was our first submission ever. And I also want to point out, Will texted me the next day saying, hey, I had several drinks before I sent you my email last night, but hopefully it turned out okay. So take that for what you will. But yeah, thanks, Will. And I'm glad that you reacted to Gravity Falls as much as me and Brian did. Anything else you want to say on it, Brian? Oh, no, just I'm really glad that you contributed. Will, anybody else? Write us, even if it takes a few glasses of social lubricant. And we would love to hear from you. The Goods Film Podcast at gmail.com. Will, I'll be sending your $5 Amazon gift card tonight. And thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us here. Yeah, I mean, that's enough for even like a premium movie. Or if you wanted, you could rent Max Magician five times. Hell, you could buy it and watch it as many times as you want for the rest of your life. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank you.